Welcome to Avowedcast, the fan community podcast for Obsidian Entertainment's future RPG game titled Avowed. This podcast is for fans by fans. We are not affiliated with Obsidian in any way, but we promise not to create a copy of Pokemon set in Aora and call it a new game. Today, we are reviewing details shared throughout this past month on Avowed's development and the game in general. These are through various gaming articles and podcast interviews that we haven't covered to this point. It is rare that I give my regard to mortals. Do not disappoint me. Welcome to Avowedcast. Thanks for coming and giving us a listen. Uh, We are starting to release a few more episodes uh, than we were before because more information is coming out about Avowed. And the goal of today is that we really just want to kind of uh, go around the internet and pull in little things from interviews that Carrie Patel and the development staff have given to various different uh, online news organizations or magazines or one podcast here or there and kind of bring them all together. In our last episode, we really did a deep dive into their deeper dive. Uh, and we talked about uh, the Creature Cast, I think it was called, podcast. And so we did all that. But there, right as we were recording that, a lot of stuff was coming out. So we wanted to touch on some more things that we learned um, and some interesting details and get your thoughts on that. Um, so today we have with us Parenthesis and Remoran and myself. And let's just go around and see what we've been doing. Parenthesis, what have you been playing lately? So I have been playing the uh, Rogue Trader CRPG that uh, was released fairly recently. It is a game set in the Warhammer 40k universe where you are thrust into the role of a rogue trader, which is a kind of, well, the best way to describe it is kind of an age of sale explorer merchant empire builder, but, you know, in the grim darkness of the 41st millennium. And that, I've only gotten past the, uh, the prologue, but... So far, it's good. How far are you into it? Have you you haven't finished it, right? No, not at all. As, as I said, I've just gotten past the prologue, so it's just you know, basically you're introduced as an heir to the current rogue trader, and you and you look at the current rogue trader, and you look like this to see. You say to yourself, "You're going to die before the prologue is over." And then she introduces another competing heir, and and that person doesn't even have a character portrait, and then you go that. You are also going to die, and lo and behold, they did. <laughs> and so it I'm looks just got... cool. I love and the it, graphics. It's also correct me if I'm wrong, a turn-based um, only yes. uh, CRPG, which I think is a good idea. Um, do you have you done much of the combat? Uh, I have actually. They they introduced it during the prologue, and then they they, they explain the systems and uh, the mechanics. I mean, it has a a bucket load of, of feats and uh, I wouldn't perhaps students it feats proficiencies the thing they're called and it kind of messes with my mind because I, I never actually played the rogue trader tabletop RPG that was released back in I think 2009 but I've listened to podcasts of people playing them and I think this uses some of the similar terms but not quite so it, it messes with my brain in all new interesting ways. Haven't heard of it. Thanks for sharing that one. Um, Rimaran, what have you been doing? I've been playing, I'm about 40 hours into uh, Persona 3 Reload. Um, so, I mean, for people who don't know it, a, a very popular JRPG uh, that was remade is on Game Pass. Um, and it is 
if you've played Persona, any Persona between three and five, three, four, or five, uh, it's very similar. Um, and I feel like you either love that sort of thing or you hate it. Like it's split between social. There's like a social simulation kind of thing going on, and then like a a dungeon delver thing going on, and then like you switch between that, and you have like uh, relationships you build with characters. You're like a like a lot of jrpgs or a lot of like anime you're a high school student um and you go through an entire year and you build relationships and some of those people also join you in fighting these like monsters that come out every full moon so you you go day by day it's a crazy weird but also amazing game for those who like jrpgs right. how, long, how long is that persona games typically <laughs> i feel like i've only played i played a little bit of four I played all of five and I'm, you know, 40 hours into three and I think I'm halfway through the game. Um, oh, and then, okay. and I think five was longer. Uh, okay. So they're always very, very long games. But I think what's great about it, I think it's more well paced than most JRPGs because I feel like my biggest problem with, with JRPGs um, is that I feel like pacing c- gets a little weird around the end. But with games like this, because they split into almost two separate games, that social aspect of the game, and then the, the dungeon delving part, I feel like it, it feels more natural. Like, I can play uh, an hour of the social stuff and say, oh, well, you know, I, I want to go in the dungeon now, and then I'll do, do the dungeon stuff, which is, feels like a, almost a different game, um, but they feed off of each other. So right, it, right. it feels good, yeah. Very cool. Um, I've been going down a nostalgia... Uh trip i just finished again kingdoms of amalur which i've mentioned many times i love that game and very simple rpg but fun and just kind of like a coffee break you know from the heavier stuff and uh then reinstalled witcher 3 so i'm gonna try to go through that again um you know just to see how that goes um but i also have dipped into um a couple of old sierra games i was watching uh a playthrough Carrie Patel did with on one of their extra lives podcasts. And it kind of got my feeling she's playing an old, uh, 1990s. Maybe I guess it came out. Maybe it was like eighties, uh, Sierra t- style game. And I used to play those. So mm-hmm. it got me back into it. So I've been goofing around with a couple of those. I found a website that lets you play those old DOS space games. And, uh, I've been doing that a little bit here and there. Um, but it's weird. I find myself not, I, I have been playing power world. I, I will admit that I played maybe, I don't know, maybe 20 hours of that so far. Um, maybe a little more. Um, it's good. I like it. It has that initial pull for me has kind of waned a little bit. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm a big, uh, I love, uh, Pokemon. So that, that was kind of what got me interested in it, but, and I, and I was pretty into it, uh, at the beginning, but I don't know why it's waned for me. So I haven't, I may not go back to that. I'll have to see. That's kind of what I've been doing. Just kind of been wandering aimlessly for some reason. And I'm not sure why, but, uh, who knows, maybe a new game will grab my attention and I'll, I'll jump into it. Um, today we went to, as we mentioned, talk about some of the, the latest articles and stuff about about uh, but before we do that, I wanted to go over a couple of updates. Uh, just recently, there was a 
Xbox business uh, meeting where they talked about or reacted to some of the chaos online that erupted when um, Microsoft was saying that they're going to start releasing their first party titles to PlayStation 5 and Nintendo. Um, There was a rumor out there that that was in the conversation. So uh, the executives at Xbox got together for the official Xbox podcast and um, specifically tried to iron things out and said that there were uh, two games that are live service games. Um, They didn't verify it, but it was verified offline. Uh, Grounded and Sea of Thieves are coming to PS5, while Hi-Fi Rush and Pentiment are coming to Switch later this year. Um, These are, of course, live service, community-driven games, and that's kind of the excuse that they gave. And then when they were pressed on whether their first-party titles uh, from companies like Obsidian or from Bethesda or any others, where are those going to remain exclusives for Xbox? And they kind of verified that. Uh, using timed exclusive as the way they discussed it. So day and date that Indiana Jones comes out will be only on Xbox. Um, That doesn't mean that it won't later uh, come out on other platforms, Uh, but it will definitely be an Xbox exclusive. Same for Starfield is remaining an Xbox exclusive. Um, Games like Hammerfell um, and others are going to probably be day one Game Pass Xbox exclusives. So that was an interesting conversation. And I thought it kind of related to pressures on the company and maybe things that could be trickling down to Obsidian. Who knows? Um, They also mentioned that there's a new Xbox on the way uh, and quote unquote, the largest technical leap ever in gaming in the hardware sector. Uh, More hyperbole, I assume. Basically, the rumors from people like IGN and such say the potential release for the new console is 2028 and that they're trying to time that release with Elder Scrolls 6 um, in the fall of 2028. So who knows if that's true or not? They also mentioned that they're doing a handheld later this year. Maybe in the fall they might release news about that. They're extending their deal with Samsung and Cloud Gaming to release that app on more TVs. and that's the update. Do you, do you, I know that uh, parenthesis, you don't even own an Xbox, right? You just play on PC exclusively, correct? I have a Windows PC and a Steam Deck and a mobile on a smartphone. That's it. Right. Remran, do you, do you have an Xbox? Uh, I'm a big Xbox fan. So, like, I have an Xbox Series X. I have an Xbox Series S. And I have, um, I have an ROG Ally, which I basically use as a, a, an Xbox PC machine because, and I have like a gaming um, PC, uh, like a high-end gaming PC that I play a lot of the, the game. Like I'm playing Persona um, on both my PC and my Xbox. And that's my thing with, with Xbox that I, that I love. And I, I saw that uh, update and I remember thinking, cause a lot of people are like, Oh, exclusives. They're worried so much about exclusives. But for me, I don't care whether PlayStation has uh, pillars or avowed or anything like that. I, other than I feel like if um, if games too many games come out like day and date on PlayStation, then I feel like the Xbox the device will be will start becoming irrelevant and people will stop buying it, which means they'll stop making it. 
And then my favorite part of Xbox, which is the play anywhere aspect of it, will kind of dwindle and disappear. That's why I don't care as long as the exclusives are kind of timed. Because for me, Persona is a good example, and Avowed is going to be a great example of this, and Outer Worlds. Like, when I played Outer Worlds, I played it on my PC um, and my Xbox. Um, and the same thing with, uh, with Persona and, like I said, Avowed. Sometimes I'll play on my PC when I'm downstairs um, hanging out, you know, watching TV with my wife and kids. Maybe I'll open up the ROG Ally and I'll play it there. If I'm, I, I have uh, the X screen for my Xbox Series X, or sorry, S, where I plug it in and it's like, it makes it almost like a portable, as long as I have a plug near me, portable Xbox. Um, and I can switch between those because of the, the cloud saves and everything. Everything just works. And I think they mentioned that a little bit in the business update too. They did, but, yeah. Yeah, but that is Xbox to me. So I personally don't care whether they go on PlayStation or Switch. In fact, I feel like Grounded, you know, Pentiment, those games are such like I think hidden gems. I feel like people should other people should play them and I feel like they're incredible and as long as like business-wise, right? If after, you know, a year, everybody who bought an Xbox for Pentiment, which I don't know if there was many, but if they did, anybody who bought those uh, an Xbox for that game probably bought it. You know what I mean? It's done. Yeah. Everyone who who what would have enjoyed it on Xbox for the most part have enjoyed it i think it can start anew somewhere else i think that's good i agree i'm on board with you 100 percent. i'm not a tribal person i don't really care i don't own a ps5 i haven't gotten around to getting it but i owned a ps3 and a ps4 i still have my ps4 i play it occasionally i'm primarily xbox now for consoles but i also play on pc and as i mentioned in earlier podcasts i play a lot on um my ipad uh, like I played most of Baldur's Gate three that I played on my iPad. And, um, so, and that's through, of course, uh, GeForce now. And, uh, I've played a lot of Xbox games on my iPad as well. Uh, it just, they work great. They're seamless. They're flawless. And the, the, like I was playing Forza four the other night. Um, and there's no frame rate loss whatsoever. I mean, it is absolutely smooth and, and that's an Xbox thing, which I love that they're doing. Um, and I think it's important. The reason I brought all this up on a Novad podcast is on February 10th, there was this whole stink, uh, and it was on the Reddit and on the Obsidian forums of where Xbox deliberately removed the Xbox series X and S and game pass logos from both Avowed and Fable on the store listings, um, which hinted that they may go multi-platform as well. I mean, that's skepticism. It's probably somebody just doing some updates on the store, and I don't know. I really don't think there's anything, and I don't really care if Avowed comes out on PS5. You know, go for it. More more money for Obsidian or more recognition, big deal. I don't even care if it comes out day and date. I think... I, I think their trump card is Game Pass and streaming. I mean, mm-hmm. those are those are their two powers that really is not being emulated, at least in a good way, on Sony's platform. Um, and it should be because that's the future. I mean, I really don't see laptop computers as we know them or desktop computers as we know them being viable in 10 years from now. I just don't see it. I think that so much of that computing power can be put online. Um, 
just just my thought. But uh, so who knows? Maybe Avowed will come out on PS5. Maybe it won't, but it really won't matter to me. Um, actually, I'll probably play it first on the PC anyway, but we'll, we'll have to see. Although that, that kind of game, I guess, does really lend itself to using a controller. I could use the controller on the PC. You can do both with the Xbox app. You can literally play, move to your console and then play it there and continue your save. So right. That's, about that's really cool. You're right. They do do very well. They do. Then they mentioned that in their update. That's one of their focuses. So anyway, I thought I'd, I'd bring that up for avowed fans because that's definitely something that was in the news. Um, you know, a week ago uh, about them removing the game pass logo and the Xbox Series X logo, um, and see where that goes. So wanted to touch on a couple of things. I think the way we're going to do this today is I'm just going to go through some of the key points that haven't been necessarily repeated a lot that we have noticed online about uh, different interviews that Carrie Patel and some of the developers have done uh, with different media organizations. I believe what happened, and I'm not positive, but this happens lots of times. They have a, a media blitz day, and uh, that means that either virtually or in person, uh, mostly virtually probably, people will they'll have an open window and contact various organizations like I, IGN or PC Gamer or whatever. Um, it feels like that's what happened because most of this information kind of dropped around the same time. Um, but there was one there was one good podcast that uh, it, it is, it is on YouTube as well, but it's also on your podcast network. It's dropped frames episode 377. It was posted around February 5th. And um, the main focus of their whole episode was suicide squad and, and a couple of other things, but the last like 20 minutes, I guess it, it doesn't really happen until two and a half hours into the podcast that they talked to Carrie Patel but they end the podcast that way. And um, I, no, I mean, I was not a big fan of the Creature cast. I thought that was embarrassing, and I was embarrassed for them. I thought that was horrible. Um, this one was the complete opposite. The guy who was asking the questions was obviously someone who played and loved Pillars, who knew about Aora, who knew about the lore, who knew what he was talking about. And asked some really good questions, some pointed questions that I, I thought I, well, I would have asked if she was sitting in front of me. So I'm just going to run through some of the things that we got, we, we pulled out of that little interview that he gave. Um, one of the funny things is he does ask her at one point, do you follow um, the, the, the fans? You know, do you follow what the fans are talking about, like on podcast shows and on YouTube? and um, obviously in forums on discord and she like, she says, yeah, yeah, we have people who follow that stuff and bring stuff that maybe is, um, recurring on different platforms and in different shows, like the, the combat was one of the ones that she mentioned. And, you know, we see that happening in different areas and it's repeating itself. We're going to talk about it internally and see what we can do about it. And so that, that, that was the point where she said, yep, we saw it. We know about the combat problem. We're working on it. So obviously that was important. Plus she mentioned that the footage we saw for Avowed was a two weeks or three weeks old at that point. Um, that's just the way those kind of media things work. So 
by the time that it, we actually saw it, she was insinuating that we'd already fixed some of the things that you saw. So that was interesting. So they are listening, which is good. Um, the returning Pillars fans um, will, this is according to her, will appreciate the grounded political story merged with a thoughtful metaphysical story of gods and souls. Um, both stories are running in parallel with the player character having a foot in each of the worlds. This is something we kind of knew, right? I mean, we know that's kind of the brand and that's kind of what Aora is all about, that that metaphysical um, and that political kind of merged together. So there's no big surprise there, but she does kind of verify that's kind of what the story focuses on. There was a mention that all NPC dialogue is voice acted. So that was verified. There was a question about loot um, and there's gonna be plenty according to her found as you are exploring and fighting. Then they come to the skill system, which we've all talked about before. And there are verified that there's multiple skill trees to compensate for the classless system. Again, stuff we've, we've heard at this point. And they can pick and choose between different trees to customize their character's combat style. But then they go on to companions, and this was verified. I don't think it was fully verified until this podcast, the Drop Frames podcast that companions do have skills. They're not as many as the player's character. Within those trees for the companions, you can put points to customize their combat. And so that was verified officially by her when she was talking. And then they talked about weapons and how lighter weapons like wands will be quicker, snappier. Again, nothing really too new there. In the video, uh, we see that icon. This is one of the ones I wanted to get your feedback on. Um, in the video, we saw that icon and we kind of talked about it uh, next to certain dialogue choices. You guys remember the little arrow? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> she verified that that refers to player creation. Um, because of certain choices you make for your player's background, different dialogue choices might appear in different certain situations, um, which I think is refreshing. How do you guys feel about uh, the ability to unlock dialogue based on choices you make at the character creation screen? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of the uh, the choices that you like choose in the beginning of Pillars um, have that stuff. Like even just race, I thought I've mentioned this before the podcast, but just people saying like, "Oh, you're a long way from home if you choose like a pale elf." Um, is really cool, and I think having things like that in Avowed just adds to that world building. I mean, definitely something we've seen before from Obsidian. Um, so that's not a huge surprise. Um, we didn't know when we were looking at the dialogue that that's exactly what it was referring to. We thought it might be skill choices. Um, but the fact that it's tied to the player's background, I think, is another way for them to compensate for not being able to choose multiple races that with uh, particular affiliations and backgrounds and such. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out for them. Um, they did mention that no skill choices are tied to dialogue. So persuasion, intimidation, that kind of stuff. According to her in this interview, those do not exist. However, based on your character creation choices, you may have benefits in certain dialogue interactions. That's a direct quote from her, which is referring to what we were talking about before. Skill trees mainly focus on combat abilities and bonuses. Are you disappointed by that? That you can't create this imposing, intimidating person by pumping in skill points? 
I mean, it, it does, I mean, yes, but also it indicates that the skill trees are mainly, if not only, focused on, on the combat aspect of things. And so if, if there isn't anything to compensate, that does mean that, that there's a large missing role-playing element, for me at least. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's, I'll call them social stats, for lack of a better word. Mm, um, I, yeah, I, I feel like those are an aspect, like, um, in Outer Worlds, you can choose to, with all the missions, you can choose to either do a stealth kind of, like, solution, or a social talking solution, or a combat-focused solution. And losing one of those, I think, takes away, you know, part of, of, of what I like. I mean, that doesn't mean that I'm going to hate it. It's just I would I will miss it for sure. I mean, it's not as much as, as, as it takes it away. It's just that it flattens it. I think the, 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 mm-hmm. the, the conversation part will still be there. It's just that instead of the, the choices you've made in creating your character on initially and on level ups, yeah, um, I mean... It, that part is removed, and it's just you going through the dialogue tree in the correct order. Yeah. So, so, so suddenly it kind of becomes free because everyone can choose it, and if you, you know what you have to pick, or you have a guide besides you, well, there you are. I don't know. I kind of I'm the guy who likes to pump points into persuasion and intimidation. I like the. Uh, I'm not necessarily always a huge fan of just hack and slash all the time and everything's about how big my fireball is or whatever. Um, I mean, I I understand that I'm probably in the minority there, but I like skill choices that are tied to, I think it's a way to, for me to customize my character to be different and to, Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. excel at different things than what normally I would do. Now, who knows? Maybe, I mean, even though she verified, they don't really exist maybe there's other ways maybe that's somehow is tied to armor that you find or enchanted weapons or i mean there's other ways that they could they could do that you know maybe there's a certain type of armor that makes you look more intimidating and that that makes them reveal more information or go deeper into a dialogue box of some sort we just don't know um and we'll have to wait till they talk more about the skill trees to see what those options are, but I thought that was interesting. That was definitely something we hadn't heard completely verified before is that there were no skill choices tied to your dialogue options, just character creation for different paths and dialogue that might be revealed. I wonder though, I wonder though, because in Outer Worlds, I don't think like past leveling up, you, you have those persuasion stats, right? But then there's this other kind of side stat um, that you that you choose at character creation that does affect dialogue, which is intelligence. So, like, if you have uh, low intelligence, you'll get uh, dumb options um, inside dialogue, which is uh, hilarious. I mean, one example is it, you have to like um, uh, uh, get the uh, hope, and you have to skip the hope um, somewhere or something like that, if I remember correctly. And if if you have the dumb option. Um, instead of using the computer, you can try doing it yourself and it, you'll skip it right into the sun and game over. And it is hilarious. And if you, if I feel like you miss something, if, if you don't allow things like that, I don't mean, you know, dumb option is the, they should have it or, or not. I just mean, generally speaking, that social part adds an element 
to the conversations and to your character and to the world building. I think like you feeling like the role playing aspect of it. Yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. It's kind of a wait and see kind of thing. I know that through this whole press blitz that we've been getting, once they finally started to release information, there has been a very, very heavy um, focus on combat, which is a little unexpected, but, I don't hate it. I'm actually kind of excited to try it and see how it works out and to see how they've taken those skills from different classes and, and, and incorporate it so I can really kind of make an effective multi-class character, which is essentially what you're doing. Um, so that I'm kind of excited to see. And I think it's great that they're putting effort into it and trying to respond to some of the criticism of Outer Worlds uh, for combat and such. Um, and we'll just have to wait and see. Hopefully they're going to open the floodgates on some more aspects of the game, such as, um, of course, character creation. And we definitely want to hear more about the story um, and how how that is going to be affected with what else is going on in the world, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But um, a couple of other little things that were mentioned that I thought were good little tidbits, that there is no base building like you would see in fallout uh or no player housing options but there is a base camp that you can have uh, kind of like what we saw in Baldur's gate 3 i would assume um or even i know dragon age origins had your base camp there's several games that use that kind of style of uh your home away from home um so the base camp sounds like it's a place where you're also going to be picking and choosing which companions are going to follow you for your next quest or adventure and such. So, um, so that, that's interesting to hear the, the difficulty settings were touched on and they range from story mode to like a path of the dam style difficulty. Um, there was also a day and night system that was verified, which is great. However, uh, Carrie Patel said that the day and night will not affect gameplay, that it's purely aesthetic. So, which is interesting, but I guess, I don't know how much of stealth is in the game or how much they play into a stealthy character. Um, but the fact that they can see me as well during the day and night seems a little peculiar, but again, she didn't give any details. She just said there is a day night system and it will not affect gameplay. It's purely aesthetic. That was her quote. Um, do you guys feel anything about that? You, I mean, I'm glad there's a day night system. I'm glad there's a progression of time and that it's not day all the time. Um, do you kind of are you kind of concerned about night not being something you could take advantage of? Actually, no, because now that I, I cast my mind back and think through all this, the the games that have day night cycles, only very few of them in practice has it, it fully implemented. And I can't remember anyone where I have noticed it has played into the self system. Day night cycles are usually. In, in, in my experience, merely cosmetic, and you're not supposed to think too hard about why merchants are still about in, in town square selling apples or whatever. Uh, it, it, is, it is merely for, for immersion, and then your mind filters out the rest. You also have to think about, I mean, if you, you really had to implement it correctly, then your character should also be tired and, uh, and sleep, and all the stores would be closed at night, and you, and you'd have to wait. And we have already established that this is not that kind of game. Yeah, I agree with that. And well, I will say, though, that I'm more interested in in that like difficulty conversation, because like the, the stealth thing, I agree 100 percent. Like, I feel like 
it doesn't matter too much. Though the difficulty thing, you know, you guys know I I keep talking about Outer Worlds because I recently played mm. it, but like, but Outer Worlds had that supernova difficulty, which adds some of that. Like, it it, it doesn't affect the day night cycle, but um, you have to sleep. Um, like to when you get hurt, you you can't like it, it. It's not like a time to debuff like it is in the base game. You have to sleep if you you know break your leg or it won't um, heal. Or you have to eat, you have to um, drink, and things like that. Um, and I I hope that Avald does something like that because I loved it so much. And I know that they it, it's she said something like it's closer to Path of the Damned. Which is like whatever. I don't really like uh, or care too much about just um, more health or right. more more monsters. Um, you know, I I rather have it like uh, a little bit of that plus some survival stuff. But that's just me. Yeah, I I, I mean, I I also don't particularly care about um, Path of the Damned, and um, you know. If anything, I'm fine with the story mode because I don't really care about fighting that much. Although with Avald, I might try something a little more challenging just because of the effort they put into combat. Um, but yeah, and I, the one thing about the day-night system that I would be curious about is, so you're, I understand the argument of of you know not having it affect gameplay, particularly from your point of view as a player character. Um, but you're having the world change aesthetically, which she does talk about the fact that, you know, at night you have this luminescent uh, plants that come out. You have, um, you have the aurora borealis, you have the, you know, you, so there's these beautiful things that happen at night, but I would also hope that maybe the behavior of the world changes a little bit. Like um, maybe there's certain animals or creatures that only come out at night. Um, you, maybe you have, uh, guards in front of this, uh, ruin and they have to go to sleep sometimes. So you have a changing of the guard when it becomes dusk. Those are the kind of things that I would like to see that I think creates more immersion. Um, not just dark, you know, flipping a switch in your room. Oh, it's dark. Oh, it's light. Oh, it's dark. I mean, that's cool. But, uh, I would like to see that the world, the living world that we're in, um, living lands uh, actually changes a little bit more than just some pretty mushrooms. Uh, again, we haven't seen, we don't know. I'm just expressing an opinion, but I would like to see a little more depth in that. And that maybe especially different creatures we might see. Have you played um, the original EverQuest? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, what was it? It was a Kithikor forest. I believe that in the nighttime, it's like, extremely dangerous oh like yeah skeletons pop out and all this i remember loving that especially uh in a game that made it very difficult to travel like getting to pl from place to place in the original yes. everquest was was a was a, a an adventure in itself which i loved or you um, get deep into the area and you're like oh shit the sun's going down i need to get the hell mm -hmm. out of here yeah mm -hmm. yeah so that's the thing uh for those games i remember loving it and i do think that if Avowed had something like that, I would love it too. I mean, my whole thing for any of these games, RPGs, is I feel like if the systems support the world, like me, the RPG aspect of it, that's my favorite thing um, about, about it. So I wish that it would 
it's not a deal breaker for me, but I hear what you're saying. I just immediately think back to Kithakor Forest and thinking and remembering it like I'm, I'm, you know, 12 again and going through there extremely afraid, like, oh, I don't know, you know, it's nighttime. Maybe wait till, till you know, daytime comes before I uh, brave the forest, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's part of that immersion. It's part of feeling mm-hmm. like you're in a legitimate world that, because in, in the world we live in now, I'm not saying it should be like the world we live in now, but there's, animals that come out at night there's nocturnal things that happen at night there's uh you know um i mean this would be crazy for them to go into that kind of depth but you know temperatures go down there's there's lots of different things that happen at at night um but anyway i just a, a silly thing you were mentioning traveling she did talk about traveling in this um dropped frames episode uh 377 and she verified there are no mounts in the game um, which sometimes is something that you expect in that kind of game. Obviously, uh, you know, the the perspective of the game, that it's not isometric. You usually have some sort of traveling mechanism um, uh, to get around. But according to Carrie Patel, Avowed has no mounts whatsoever. You're moving around on foot the entire time. However, she did hint that some of the gear might enhance your movement speed a little bit. But you're definitely walking around. But it was interesting that when that was brought up, when the guy brought up travel and movement, that she didn't talk about fast travel at all, which makes me wonder, do you think they don't have fast travel in this game? No way they don't have fast travel. I feel like they have fast travel. I mean, it's just something that you have in in a game like that. Yeah, I, I can't see them not having it either. And then they would bring it up as an explicit talking point. Yeah, I think, yeah, I agree. It's got to be there. It's just like an assumed thing. Well, going back to, to, to mounts, the, the obvious kind of uh, game to compare it to is, is, you know, Elder Scrolls, right? Um, is it just me? Am I, the, am I the outlier here? But I don't ever use horses in those games. I've never used a horse. I've guys, you know, you know, I, there was a quest to get a horse in oblivion at the beginning of the game, mm-hmm. you know, the, and then of course you can uh, secure horses from the stables in Skyrim, but no, I never use them. I mean, yes, they're a little bit faster, but I don't know. I just didn't No. Well, now if you play, if you play the game in survival mode, um, which they added in the, you know, the newest edition, um, where you can't fast travel, then suddenly it becomes, that's why I love those, those survival mode things. I know if anybody at at Obsidian is listening, add a survival mode, it's going to be amazing. But, um, (laughs) but really like, but really I remember playing, I didn't even finish the game in survival mode, but it felt like a completely different game. And I remember horses being extremely important because I have to go from one place to another. I think the only fast travel that existed in, in survival mode in Skyrim is I, I think you could still travel from like horse that those, those, uh, stables to each of the stables. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which is makes sense. That's legit. I mean, right. They didn't put, thankfully they didn't make us sit through like a 30 minute, uh, montage of us traveling you know but yeah that, yeah that worked i did play the survival mode and i agree with you it was fantastic and really changed the game completely i mean it kicked my ass though but it was it was very interesting and i, I think that would be something fun you know maybe even later they could throw that, that in uh mm-hmm. but uh 
pretty interesting. But, uh, other than that, though, have you ever used? I don't ever use horses inside. I, I don't. I use yeah. Other than like mounting them a couple times, moving around a little yeah. bit, but like going from general, going from place to place inside every single Elder Scrolls game, I pretty much just walked. In Elder Scrolls, yeah, there are other games I've played where they've actually incorporated it, not just in travel but in combat. Uh, so Witcher. Witcher is a good example of that, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely you can it changes the way you fight and you also move considerably faster. Whereas in I didn't feel like in Skyrim it made that much of a difference. But mm-hmm. you know, in Witcher, you're booking it on the horse. You really are moving pretty fast. Um and there are quite a few other games with horse related combat. Um that would be interesting, but th- I guess there are no horses in the living lands. So um <laughs> We'll see. Maybe that'll be a DLC. So that, again, is uh, Drop Frames episode 377. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on your podcast. I highly recommend that one. And I, and I give the huge amount of respect to the guy who was asking the questions. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people who are not afraid to ask difficult questions. And he, he did ask some difficult questions. And I'm not, And somebody who obviously has played the games before and is a fan himself. Um, that was good. That was very enjoyable. I was losing hope after that other one, which was a nightmare. So this was a good one. They, they did a great job. Um, there was a, uh, several interviews that, um, IGN did with Carrie Patel and the group. Um, and, uh, they talked about various things again, some things that we've, we've already talked about, um, before. So I'm going to try to highlight the things that might be new that we haven't heard about or some quotes that might flesh out some things that we've heard about decisions that they've made. So one of the big ones that came from the IGN interview was that Avowed will have multiple endings. And these endings are tied to player decisions throughout the game. And their goal was to have the world kind of react to the player and their choices, of course, that's their mantra there. Um, How do you guys feel about that? They better have multiple endings. Why else are we playing this game? Well, I mean, so tell me about that. Now, what is your expectation? Is your expectation that the crit story path, the the main story path, have multiple endings? Are you talking more about the my story throughout the game is different based on the choices and the places I visit and that kind of thing? Are you talking more about like Detroit become human, where there's like you know, a hundred different endings or, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but what, what are you expecting then knowing from what you've seen from Obsidian before parenthesis? So what I expect is that there, there may be, I mean, in, in the big picture, I expect that if I play through the critical path, I will see most of the game. I don't, I don't think that will be like, like it'll branch off in, in seven different uh, end games or, 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 lock me out of a lot of content on the main branch. Of course, if I go to, to the, the, uh, the side quest, that, 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 that I expect there to be some of that. And I expect that to be, I mean, preferably I would like the old slideshow approach where they just, where they crunch some, some math and some states and then they go, oh, well, you, uh, you did this, this and that for Kai and that, therefore you got a happy ending or a sad ending. And and at the end of the day, that that is what I expect. But I, I mean, at, at uh, as an absolute minimum, I guess I would could be satisfied with like three endings that is like the aggregate, good, bad, or neutral. Okay. Yeah, I, 
I completely agree with that. I mean, like ending slides are my best case scenario. Ending slides, meaning like a fallout or um, pillars, uh, outer worlds had them. My favorite example is Wasteland 3, which was a, a song that played and the song was different. I believe I it's been a while since I played it. The song was different depending on your endings. So they would have different verses, um, which was incredible. I mean, YouTube it if you haven't seen it um, or play it because it's amazing. But that is my favorite kind of, uh, I, I feel like there should be little endings for each like um, major decision that you made. Like if, if in one zone you have to um, choose whether this place exists or not, let me see th what I wrought. You know what I mean? What decisions I made and uh, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I, I'd like to see it all. So th that's what I would like. Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, you know, she has this answer. She gives a lot of these reporters as I was reading reading through the different articles is kind of like a duh, we're obsidian. Yeah, we're going to have different endings. Yeah, it's going to be a narrative-driven story. You know, kind of like, you know, do your research. But I'm curious as to um, how they're going to do that. Is this the slide approach? Is this the how much depth is going into that? And uh, I don't expect a Detroit become human. I don't. That's ridiculous amount of work and narrative it's craziness, but um, maybe a little bit more than we saw in like Outer Worlds or or even in Pillars. I mean, Pillars did a pretty good job. I, I agree with that, but I don't know. I kind of want that full ending that for whatever amount of time and effort I put into it. Uh, and, and if they can make them fairly radically different and not black and white, that would be pretty incredible. Um, for them to do. So it'll be a wait and see. I'm kind of hoping that they dive into that even more, maybe put as much effort into that as you did combat. That would be really cool. Carrie Patel does go in and talk about why you can only play as a human or an elf. And again, we, we talked about this, you're representative of the deer and empire. You are predominantly human or elves in that area. And that's kind of why the story plays into character creation and that you're not creating all these different races. Uh, that play into the game. But she does go into the development side of it, and I'm going to read a quote to you guys that she says. She kind of verifies what we thought before, but I wanted to put it on the podcast at least. She says that one of the things about the species of pillars that I think is a lot easier to account for in an isometric game is just the variation in sizes. You have the Amala, and then you have humans and elves who are roughly the same scale, and then you have the Orlon, Orlon and dwarves, which are quite a bit smaller. And for each of those, especially in person, you're adjusting the height of the player's uh, player character's capsule and sort of where their weapons are relative to the enemies, um, how their hits land, how the hits land on them. And it's obviously not that any of these things are impossible to solve but you always have to make choices and choosing priorities and development. So that kind of, as we've talked about that before, um, in the fact that we knew that that would be a particular challenge for them, especially when you're playing in uh, first person or, um, you know, being a, a tall giant versus a dwarf, it makes a big difference. Um, that's not really the reason. I, I mean, I understand, I get it. I mean, I, I 
and I get it. It's a lot of extra work. I mean, it's definitely one of the biggest disappointments being a Pillars fan that I'm not able to pick different races, but I understand this is a narrative game. This is a set story. I kind of, I kind of have to go with it as to what they choose. It makes you wonder a little bit, was this, are they looking at, were they primarily looking at development time, money, and making content decisions based on that? Or do you think they had the idea of being an emissary or uh, before they started talking about that? Do you think that the driving factor was the fact that it's hard to do and it takes a long time? I think it was two parts technical difficulties and then one part law. Basically, the conversation could have gone like this. How about we pick the Adirian Empire, then we don't have to deal with Amara, Wolves, Poland's. And, and, and yeah, that's a great idea. They have a rich law and they have a president of the living lands, blah, 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 blah. And then that happened. Yep, I 100%. I even, you'll see this too, if they, if they do pale off, if they allow you to change the skin color of your elf to like a pale elf, which doesn't technically make sense for lore-wise, but I would love it because they're my favorite race. But then that to me means they don't really care that much about lore, that this was mostly a decision based off of uh, the technical challenges. And I get it. Um, for example, you know, making an Orlin versus a Amawa, I feel like that would if that would change combat. No, I mean, I'm not I'm not an expert, but I feel like combat would be different because you're of, of your height. Does that make sense? So I feel yeah, like. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like I feel like it's going to. It matters, and it is a technical challenge, and, you know, it is what it is. It is, but it's also, just me being devil's advocate, is also as part of the richness of the world, and it makes me wonder if, is she just talking about the player character, or are we now talking about the entire living lands? Are we oh. talking about that, well, shit, we're not going to see any of these guys? I think we saw, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure we saw dwarves, right? I, I swear I saw them fighting dwarves inside oh, some, of the, some of the trailers. I think we did. I think we did. So that helps me a little bit to know that, you know, because that would be really weird. I mean, not to be well, able to see those races. But we can also see that, I mean, even from the first trailer that they, they have, I mean, the, the first gameplay trailer that they have scaled back the the difference in, in scale between the races. I mean, like the, the, the giant ogre is, is smaller than, than I, I thought they should be in, in first person. And so are the Amawa. Kai is barely taller than you are. And usually Amawa should be literally dwarfing you. That's true. Yeah. But I mean, uh, you know, as much as I sound down on it, uh, and, and I am, but we have to put these things in perspective. I mean, if, if we go to the competitor, the competitor we always go to, that is uh, Bethesda's The Elder Scrolls. Let's look at Skyrim. I mean, I haven't taken a ruler and, and measured all the races, but I'm pretty sure they are more or less the same. But, uh, this is something that I actually think about a lot, because I actually uh, I see people complain about like the number of races in a lot of games, especially The Elder Scrolls. And um, <laughs> but, uh, so... The like how long it would take to implement each race and stuff like that is something I think about a lot. Uh, first of all, it, even within the lore, um, even though Skyrim they're they're pretty pretty comparable, uh, 
within the lore, they're they're very different. Like high elves are the tallest. Dunmer pretty pretty average. Um, Nords are a little bit taller. Wood elves are tiny little manlets. Uh, <clears throat> but um, the the argument that the the technical difficulty aspect is something that um, that I absolutely like. I totally see that. Um, just just as an example, I see people uh, claim that they want slows in the in the next Elder Scrolls game. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with with, with slows at all, but they're they're literally just giant slug people. I'm pretty <laughs> sure they have legs, but they're like they're massive. They're they're massive and they're gross and they're slimy. Um, <laughs> so my thought process with that is also like, okay, you want slows in the game? Um, uh. Uh, how is how is the average person going to react when they have this massive fat of too slowed uh walk through a normal door right. what about like when you go in a dungeon like e- even not even for like a loading zone what if you go into a dungeon you at that point you can't have any tight spaces you right. can't have any you can't have any small like the entire world has to be built to be slowed accessible and even though I'm sure that that is appealing for a lot of people, um, we talked I mean, we talked about um, EverQuest earlier. If if you played uh, what is it, the Halfling? Like if any, if you were like an ogre and you tried to go to the Halfling village, you wouldn't fit in literally any of the houses, like <laughs> any of them. It's definitely detrimental. Um, so, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and I'm sure like it makes sense for an RPG. To be like, well, no, because of your race, you just you, you cut yourself off from this content. But like, imagine the outrage. Imagine, imagine how many people would just pick a, a, a race based off of, you know, because they think it's funny or because they think it's interesting and they don't know the lore implications, and they get halfway through the game and find out that this one piece of content they found really interesting is completely cut off from them because they can't go inside the dungeon or they can't fit inside the houses or. <laughs> Or, or anything like that, you know. It, it, it there would be there'd be outrage. Um, I think that's a great point. I had yeah. thought from I, I was thinking really the perspective of of us interacting with NPCs or NPCs interacting with us. I was thinking about the world. That's very true. I mean, you have just everything really to you know paths, things like that. Mm-hmm. Although you could argue that, you know, that would just add more to the strategy and that that you would be able to uh, run away from something, the big dragon, because he can't fit through the hole. And then you, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think for people like us that love RPGs and stuff like that, that we would, we would love it. We would uh, accept it. And it would make sense to us. But uh i think the average person like you know as as a company they obviously they want to make money they want to appeal to as many people as possible i think that the average person is going to be like what the hell because i'm a a dwarf i can't go to this i I can't reach i can't be a good thief because i can't reach the countertops or or because i'm an ogre i can't (laughs) i can't fit through this hole um yeah. Uh, so they're, they're gonna they're gonna be like, well, 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 to hell with us, and they're gonna return the game. Like, <laughs> that's true. That could really really tick some people off. Yeah. So now, I will say that there are definitely ways that you can build around that. Like you you could make it so that way you don't have 
like if uh if you're a tall character or whatever maybe most quest mar- uh most quest objectives are outside or most dungeons or whatever are built around having a larger character or a smaller character but um at that point everything is very like there's no variation in design like everything is built to be accessible by everyone so you're going to end up with locations and and quests that are that hit the same kind of notes and always start the same kind of way and uh and it's going to get boring yeah totally i I totally see your point and, and agree with you actually um yeah it'll be it'll be interesting to see you know as at least we know us as the players will not have, you know, there will be no sliding bar on how tall you are and you're not, you know, none of that's going to be in there, but um, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, she does go on to verify in that interview that there is no romance period. Um, and then I'm going to read a quote from her about why they chose that because it does kind of lead into something else. We learn a little bit more about, um, and this is directly from Carrie Patel. She says, Uh, We're building thoughtful relationships with our companion characters. Ultimately, I personally am a fan of making that an option, but I feel like uh, if you're going to do it, you really, really have to commit and make sure that you're giving all to fulfill that in a way that feels both true to the character and also creates an engaging player experience. So not something we're doing with Avowed, but I wouldn't say never. Um, and she goes on to imply that companions will react to your choices um, and will be direct with your player about their feelings and thoughts and uh, on what you're doing and how you're playing and how you're interacting with the world. And so it sounds like they're that even though there is no romance, um, it does sound like you are creating an intimate relationship with your companions, which we're kind of familiar with. They try to do that in Outer Worlds a little bit. Um, and so that is definitely going to be in there. It's not like this is a totally, um, stoic game, but your, your, your companions are going to be really where that kind of positive and negative or, or choices or moral choices and things like that kind of come into play. And they sounds like they've really built into the companions, a system where they're going to be reactive to you and what you do with their feelings and thoughts how do you guys feel about that are you you know i know we've talked about romance before and that most of you sound like you're okay with not having any romance because it's it's pretty meaningless um but how do you feel about really going all in on on the companions we can only carry two companions with us we'll be able to switch at the camp it sounds like um does that encourage you to spend more more time with one companion throughout the game if they're going to create that kind of depth or does it encourage you to just switch them out as much as possible to find the one that um, matches your play style and doesn't complain about what you're doing <laughs> i think both right right yeah yeah um and also i feel like you have more time to 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 have like these intimate moments with companions that do- that don't have this weird like thing hovering over it like and we've talked about this uh, in other podcasts, but like a great example is in Baldur's Gate three. I remember like uh, going with Gale, and he was like teaching me magic, and he was like it was really cool, a really kind of intimate moment. Not in a in 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 like a sexual way either. It's just like he's like teaching me, telling me like concentrate and all this stuff. 
And then I was like, oh, this part is so cool. And then by the end, he's like, <laughs> he like starts to get closer to me. And I'm like, oh, no, that's not what I meant. This is weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like having those intimate moments without this weirdness that has to be sexual behind it um, can really make some awesome moments. Um, and I feel like with, with games that have romance, it almost feels like an expectation to have everybody all the companions uh, romanceable, which makes it awkward sometimes because you don't know what you're going to say that'll, that'll, you know, start something with a companion that you don't want. Yeah. Uh, I think as far as the romance goes, I think that's like a, that's a really weirdly slippery slope. Um, uh, it gets, it, I think it gets uncomfortable very fast. I don't know. Um, I don't know if you guys, uh, got that far in Starfield. I actually don't know how many of you have actually played Starfield. If you uh if you go through any of the romance lines, uh, at least with like like uh with Sarah Morgan. Um, oh god, she it gets me. <laughs> um, I uh that's a very popular opinion. Um it gets it gets very uh deep and it is uh it's uncomfortable. Like I I'm I, I'm saying they're a grown ass man and I was like I want this to be over. I'm ready for this to be over. <laughs> uh, you literally, like, you say her, your vows to her and everything, and you have multiple options and stuff. Like, they actually planned. It feels like they planned for people to actually want to marry her, like, to genuinely, like, be fanatical over her. Yeah. Uh, it's, very, it's very uncomfortable. Um, you marry her on a beach, right? I, I think I did yeah. that. Yeah. yeah you marry her on a beach. Uh, mother's there. It's weird. Her, her mother is there. Uh, the previous uh, person that held her position there in uh, a, a constellation is yeah. uh, is officiating like it's um and, and she has like some very very heartfelt words to say like it gets it gets <laughs> really really personal and it feels really really weird. Um, <clears throat> that said, um, I, I feel like uh, a it's a slippery slope because it, it can get like really really uncomfortable. Like how far is too far? And even then, that's a that's an answer that varies depending on who you are. Like, I'm sure pl there are people out there that were like, this is great. And then you have people like me that were extremely uncomfortable the whole time and kind of longed for the days of Skyrim when if you did get married, it was just this really, really quick and simple thing. <laughs> but even then, like, once you start having romance options, uh, this is, again, this is a little uncomfortable, but you're always going to have people that are like, why not this person? Because unless you have an option that appeals to every major fetish or every major aesthetic, then you're, you're going to end up with people that are like, why not this random NPC outside this building? That's really hot. And, um, and it, it just, it creates so many weird complaints, uh, that I feel like developers probably don't want to address that much. Um, but even then, as far as companions go, <clears throat> um, uh, I like I, I like just the uh, the friendliness option a little bit better yeah, personally. Yeah, I agree, and I and we've talked like I said about this before. And I I am a romance person. I like romance in my games, but I, it's just like uh, that's a very general term that could mean a lot, a lot of things. Like if you think about books, for example, you know, just because I like romance in books I read doesn't mean I want to grab a Harlequin novel with a guy with the oily chest on the front cover and. <laughs> 
and it goes into <laughs> intricate details about how I penetrate him. No, I don't want to do that. Um, you don't want I, the Dennis Reynolds. I don't game. want that. That's not what I'm looking right. for. That's more the Baldur's Gate approach. I want subtlety. I want, I would prefer, you know, one person, um, but I want it to be realistic, right? Like the, the mm-hmm. Sarah isn't, it's not very realistic. I mean, at least I don't think so. Cause I think she's a rigid person anyway. So it, it just doesn't fit right. And if it doesn't fit right, don't do it because then you just totally destroyed it. So I respect their decision to leave it out of a vow. I think, I think that mm-hmm. is a strength of pillars and a strength of outer worlds games. The companions are their strength. They do a great job of crafting them, their stories. And I do want to, I guess friendly is the term you used. And I think, you know, become close to them. Um, mm. I felt that uh, some of the Dragon Age games did a good job of this as well. And I really felt like a bond with them as I traveled around with them, got to know them a little bit more. That's the kind of stuff I like. I don't necessarily want to lay them on the rock and have sex and then go kill a dragon. So <laughs> something slightly different that you mentioned about uh, her saying that sh- that the companions react like as long as it's not like starfield where i feel like none of the characters are satisfied with you doing like bad things right you got i feel like there has to be like one companion at least that that if you if you do a bad playthrough it's not going to talk bad about you mm-hmm. and i feel like in starfield every sing- i mean the only person who doesn't is like vasco but vasco doesn't say anything bad about anything you know so i feel like i hope that there is a variety of different personality types um, that you can choose from in terms of companions. Yeah, I, I heavily agree with that. I think, um, honestly, I, I think I always really like Fallout 3 and how they handled companions, even though it was like really, really like simplistic and formulaic. Like there was someone for every karma right. uh, level. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it, it uh, it wasn't even just that there, there was one for every karma level. There were a few for every karma uh, level, and uh, some of them were good enough that you actually, like, you kind of were uh, lightly encouraged to change your karma level just so you could get them. I mean, like, like Fox or um, or the Paladin. Uh, I forget her name. Paladin Star. Uh, but yeah, no, I um, I, I definitely think there should always be a a companion that's willing to let you do whatever the hell you want. Um, I think a, a like in something in a game like Starfield, like a pirate companion would have been. Just, I mean, there's. You know. I remember Sarah saying something like, "Oh, I don't care where you make your money or do your thing. Con- there's all it takes all folks sorts to be in, in in constellation." Basically, she said that, and she <laughs> is upset at literally everything I did on because I played a um, a bad guy playthrough. I did I did the pirate storyline, mm-hmm. and you just can't have her with you if you do that storyline because you're going to no. kill people, and she's not. It, I mean, it, I have I don't have as big an issue with the. I mean, this is a little off topic. I don't have a, as big an issue with the companions in Starfield because they feel like people. That's part of why I love them so much. Because uh, Sarah has like a very rigid morality system, and uh, I think that makes sense for her with her military mm-hmm. background and stuff like that. And that's um, I can also acknowledge that that's why she gushes to you when you actually do get on that romantic level with her because she um, because she she doesn't open up about a lot of things to other people. You are the one person. So she bottles it up and it just explodes. Gotcha. 
Yeah, yeah. That she's honestly she's very, very well written. I think a lot of people just are get annoyed by how judgy she can be. Yeah, I didn't get that like... far with her because she annoyed the shit out of me. And then I got the other girl, I forgot her name, uh mm, the sexy one. Off the shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the sexy one I made her my companion. And then I went on some quest on one of the planets and uh, I actually had her stay at the ship or something right outside the ship. I, you know, you stay here. I'm going to go do my thing. Cause I don't, you know, I was trying to do stealth or whatever. And they always fuck that up. So yeah. I go and do my thing. Right. And I thought I did what I was supposed to do. I did everything right. And then I come back and she gives me a fucking lecture and she starts <laughs> yapping at me. I'm like, bitch, what? I mean, well, dude, this is well, my ship. I'm going to leave you on this planet. So <laughs> I did. So I, you know, but it, it was just annoying. It was like, what? You know, this was like, and it was like so surprising. It wasn't like it, there was a lead up to it. It wasn't like mm. that I had continually been making these decisions that annoyed her. And she would let me know that if I, you want to keep me in your group and have me help you, um, you need to change your ways or whatever. I don't know. I stepped on a plant or something and she got all pissy. And uh, I'm like, dude, I mean, <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. I, it was just very, very weird and frustrating, and it didn't feel genuine to me. Although I do agree, I, I, I still enjoy the game, and I still liked some of the companion interactions, but mm-hmm. the extreme stuff really bothered me. Now, we were talking about yeah. morality, and I wanted to go on to another article where Carrie Patel actually addresses that. It was a Games Radar interview on January at the end of January where she kind of distraught she really dives into i don't know why this particular interview she did it but she dives into that morality question and and choices and the essence was that she explained that you know they want the player to consistently act ask themselves who do i want to be in this world and um be that in the in the face of the game's more thoughtful political philosophical quandaries are simply when you're working out the most logical conclusion to, to a quest line, you know, about aims to systematically challenge your moral compass. Who can you trust? Where do your loyalties lie? You know, that hmm. those are the kind of questions she went into. And she specifically said that they're trying to avoid black and white, good versus evil morality scales in the game. So just by that alone, it feels like they're aware that there are some games that go off kilter a little bit and, and that they, you know, you're not surprised maybe by the interactions as much and that um, they're a little close, feels a little closer to real life um, or to life as we know it. And where sometimes it's not obvious, right? Sometimes the right choice, you know, may feel obvious, but sometimes it, it doesn't. But the outcome can be surprising, and justifying that surprising is, uh, you know, the interactions you've made to that point have all added up into some sort of equation to to that particular thing. And she has a quote. She says, "This is a quote from her." She says, "So I feel that as a designer, I enjoy challenging, and as a player, I enjoy being challenged in that regard." where I really get to chew on something complicated and kind of make and explore those decisions in the relatively safe environment of the game. And when I think about uh, some of the quests and dilemmas that I still hear players talking about years later, um, 
I like to think of the Legion's loyalty quest in Mass Effect 2. It is particularly famous for this. It's the choices that people really had to think about. And that's what I think, uh, what kind of binds them more to their characters, their avatar to the world, and also the characters and companions that they're sharing their journey with because you're like, oh man, we really went through this together. Uh, there's a similar, like, Pillars 2 had a lot of that, which I really loved. I know there were, like, companions that represented each um, faction. And the the problem or the, the problems that the uh, Deadfire was facing, were facing, um, were kind of complicated, right? Because, you know, the Huana, they're the, 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 the people that live there. Um, and the Rawatayans, who feel some kinship, towards the Juana, you know, the coastal and island Almawa, come in and say, like, oh, we can make this better, or we can kind of modernize. And in some ways, you're like, well, that's not cool. The Juana don't want to modernize. But in other ways, you know, the Juana are, are in, like, a caste system that, like, it, it it's kind of like a decaying kind of caste system, and uh, people are not having a good time. People are starving, literally starving, if I remember correctly. Um, and you kind of have to make a choice. Like, is it better to to take these, basically take these people's land or is it better to have them stay there, but like live in a system that that isn't really working anymore? It's really complicated. And even like the, the Valian Republic, it, or I believe the, the trading company, they're coming in and they can, the land can kind of prosper with them in charge because they can bring trade. They can bring, you know, tech, more technology but they have no business being there at all. They're not kin, neither kin nor, you know, have the best interest of Hoana in mind. So it's, it's really complicated. But is there any other quest lines you guys can think of, either from Pillars or any other game where you like stopped in your tracks and you're like, oh shit, that was, I felt bad about that. Or I felt like either way I went, I was, I was screwing these this NPC or these people or this land or does anything pop in your head like that? Um, the, uh, I'm pretty sure it is a marked quest, uh, in fall at new Vegas where you have to choose between basically killing those people that are trapped inside the vault or giving enough, uh, making sure that the crops can be irrigated. At, well, uh, crops, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> also like, uh, like Veronica with the Brotherhood of Steel quests. Like, it always felt like she was getting screwed over no matter what. I just felt bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The whole concept of Wasteland 3 is that, you know, at the end of Wasteland 2, um, your your group, your faction, took a huge loss. Um, and you, you're in, I believe, in Arizona. Um, and you go to Colorado to get help. Um, and this the patriarch, this leader of Colorado, says... I can help you. You just have to help me, like rein in my power. Uh, but as soon as you go there, you realize that um, he might not be the best person to be in charge, um, and you sort of have to choose between helping him so that he can help your faction in Arizona that cannot be sustained without his help, or doing the right thing. <laughs> it's really complicated, and you know, it, it, it in the end, if you do decide, whatever you decide has consequences, no matter which way. Um, and I don't think and that's kind of my favorite part about Wasteland 3 is that I never felt 100% happy with the decision that I made. I felt like I made the best decision that I could at the time. 
Does that make sense? And I feel like yeah. having that mm-hmm. inside of games is really cool. So I don't have an example for for what is, but actually I have an example for, or I I, I have, yeah, I kind of have an ex- I wouldn't say example, but I actually have some qu- some moral issues that I, I would like that I don't think are represented. So. Uh, morally gray options are good, but I think they are often morally dark gray. I would actually like some morally light gray. It's like, like instead of choosing which of, of these four asshole factions you're going to support that have that good points, but certainly also the, the, the bad points, I would actually like to cho- have a choice like saying, which of these four options uh, am I going to choose that are going to help some people not hurt anyone, but they're just going to help these kinds of people. So, like, uh, like, uh, like the power <laughs> at Helios One. Yeah, sort of, sort of like that. Where, where I can actually, um, I'm, I'm, st- I'll still have to be conflicted, and I can't say why this would be difficult to to design and implement. But, but, but usually, great just uh, boils down to yeah, these are all, all four factions, and I have. To, to support any one of them. And that's that's fine, but I'm just getting a bit fatigued by them. And I'm actually like to have some positivity. I mean, I can p- I can pick a faction or, or, or a group of people to favor. And, and the ones who aren't favored, they can still give me shit. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. Understandable. <laughs> that should be part of it. But but it would be lovely to actually bring some goodness into the world. And and yeah, you, you brought some goodness into these people, but 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 not but why not? All of, of those people. Well, I had to make a choice. Yes, fine, but when did then? Why didn't you choose us? You know, as both of you were talking, I was thinking about like what, like there's some like I guess the easiest example is um, Fallout Three, the the you know Megaton and the bomb um, blowing up or not blowing up. <laughs> in a way, I mean, that's a moral choice that you can feel bad about, but that's not really what I'm looking for. I feel like I feel like that's not a perfect example of um, what I'm seeking. I feel like that was, I mean, yes, you can really get involved with it and feel really bad about it. I mean, <laughs> you're nuking a town, but um, it's not really the kind of moral stuff that gets to me. I don't know. It's more the subtleties for me that I'm looking for. It's more the stuff that maybe like when Carrie Patel says, you know, you can kind of look at your own real life and say, okay, yeah, this is similar to something that that's so fantastical. And it's also so silly in a way uh, that I would almost call that a black and white morality. Whereas, you know, something that is, maybe smaller in scale and maybe more <laughs> intimate is the kind of thing I would want to see in a vow. Mm. I mean, I, I'm, I liked Megaton, right? I like blowing it up, but it just didn't feel like, um, I don't know. I didn't, it didn't feel as weighty as I, think. I was going to say, I was going to say weighty is a big thing, right? Like I, I mentioned that wasteland quest. It, it's weighty, not because you're choosing between uh, doing the right thing or surviving, but really, it is an existential kind of threat to the Arizona Rangers, right? And they have a moral code. And your choice really is, are you, are you going to let the Arizona Rangers die? Or are you going to do something that is so against the moral code that, the, that what represents those, the Rangers 
just to keep them to, to survive. Are they even the Arizona Rangers if you make that choice? You know what I mean? Like yeah. that type of stuff that makes mm. you really think is, is really cool. And that's what I would like. Big or small. Yeah. I mean, they don't all have to be um, front page news headlines grabbing stuff, you know, and I think that they know that they're very good at that. So I'm not worried about that at all. I do want to keep moving. There's a couple of things, a couple of other things from different places. I want to finish out the game's radar because there was something at the end of the game's radar interview that we had not heard from anyone else that Carrie Patel addresses and goes into that I thought was really interesting. Um, and that was tackling specifically bringing in new people to Aora, to the Pillars universe, to the lore, um, which is daunting, obviously, task because of just with those two games combined is, you know, we can all agree is pretty extensive amount of uh, world building knowledge that is shared. And you could imagine somebody and she said before that they built this game so that you don't have to have played pillars. Um, but then she was asked that question pointedly and she responded and I want to kind of share what she said. I thought it was interesting. So she talks about this new system that they're integrating in avowed called uh, lore tool tips. Um, and she basically said this new lore tooltip system, and this is her direct quote, there's, a system that our team is working on integrating into Avowed right now that we first had in Tyranny and we also used in Deadfire, which is lore tooltips, where for a particular name or piece of lore, when it comes up in dialogue or in a piece of written text, you can kind of hover over it and get a little summary, um, like, well, what is the living lands, you know, for example. And, oh, okay, now I get it. Um, and it doesn't otherwise interrupt the flow of the game and what you're doing. Um, and I'm, I'm excited that they're using the system again and that they're, they're kind of bringing it into avowed, which is a much more difficult than dead fire, I think. Um, because it's just daunting the amount that you would have to know about that. How, do you, do you like that? Do you feel that's good because it adapts to different player styles, like people who don't give a shit and then you know, just want to hit everything or are people maybe like me who likes to read everything? Well, I think it's obviously excellent because yeah, it's just, I mean, it's, it's optional. You can, you can opt in and I mean, all RPGs should have, I think all RPGs should have something like this because it is always, and it's almost always a new world and it hits you with a, a, a metric shit ton of proper nouns that you have to learn and, and recognize. Not even proper nouns, too, because I love that part of it, right? It, it brings that immersion. Um, but it also allows characters to act in a natural way that fits into the world. And you don't have to worry about whether the player will get what well, needs to understand it or not. Because if they, if they don't, they can just hover over. An example, language. Like the Valians, uh, you know, mixing their language into having conversations with you. Uh, adds to that immersion. Like if they call you Aimiko, right? Like that means friend. Um, th those who care or those who don't care can probably figure that out the longer they play. Those who care can hover over, figure it out immediately. And those who don't care at all and whatever, they can just keep it moving. And I feel like adding that just is additive. Do you feel um, 
I'm being devil's advocate here, Carrie, if you're listening, so don't get mad at me. Um, do you feel <laughs> that in some ways that's lazy? Do you feel that there are better ways to incorporate uh, this lore and this backstory and this vocabulary it's where it's not a mechanical system that you click on on the screen where you're using your mouse to click on it and that maybe takes a little is there another way to do it that you know of in other games i mean they're already doing it in in ways that other games are doing it like the uh lore books you know the books that you find you know and I, again that's why i think it's additive it doesn't take away from the things that all, that other games already do um but it adds uh, another layer because other games already have sort of encyclopedias where you can go in inside the menu and, and find these, this information or books or like just having side quests that teach you a little more about the, the, the world, things like that. It doesn't take away from those things. It only adds more depth. It, it does take a lot of work to have a lore database like this. You have to really think through it from the perspective of somebody who's never played in this world before, who doesn't understand it. It's a lot of work in and of itself and it's appreciated and I like it definitely um, in games when it's there. I just know that there's some people out there who are really into RPGs for the immersion and the less things I have to click on or clicky or menus, you know, I, they may say, for example, prefer to go into this ruined uh, mosque or something or whatever, you know, and then they walk in and there's this, there's these books on the floor, or maybe they, there's this old beggar man in the town and he recounts the story of such and such. Um, and obviously that takes away from the rest of the game, right? It takes away from the development. It, they only have a hundred people working on the game. So what can you do? But there are, advantages to you know having other ways to present the information that's all i'm throwing out there not picking on you carrie so calm down um <laughs> i did want to go to uh, that was the end of that uh games radar interview which was the one about morality and they talk about the lore tooltips in that one um there is another one that we kind of touched on before. It actually released the day we were recording the last podcast, and that was the Eurogamer interview. Um, and that, uh, I think, came out on the 27th of January. Um, and there was a couple of things in there that, that we touched on, but we didn't really go into. And I wanted to give people a chance to hear this. So one of the key questions that was presented by the person who was doing the interview was, where, you know, when does Avowed take place? Um, so Carrie Patel verified uh, that Avowed starts up shortly after the events at the end of Deadfire. Um, but the two games, um, Avowed and Deadfire, won't be narratively connected. And this is the way she phrased it. She says the two storylines are very separate. Um, the process that Aothus, uh, go set, I'm trying to read, sets in motion at the end of Deadfire is not uh, an instantaneous state change in the world, which is interesting. Um, it's something that is going to take place and slowly change the world over generations, but not overnight. So that gives us a bit of breathing room to give the player some other adventures in the interim. Um, so... I think, you know, slight spoilers ahead, maybe we'll try to keep them to the minimum. But um, we had referred to this a little bit in our last podcast that the ending of Deadfire is problematic. 
um, when we're talking about souls and, and the way that system works. Um, how do you guys feel about this, the way she approached this uh, question? Oh, I, I more interpreted uh, as her saying that they are, they are uh, not picking up uh, directly at the very least on, on what happened at the end of Dead Fire, and they're giving themselves some narrative room to create their own crisis. Okay, so you still think that the the event that happened at the end, um, it happened, and that's not that that does we do see the effects of that in the living lands. I think you know what I'm getting at, right? Uh, I know what you're getting at, but I'm actually saying that 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 if we're seeing the effects of of, of that event, then it won't be you know uh, stupendous. It it'll, it it may it might be that, but it is probably not connected to the main plot. That's what I'm getting from what she's saying. I think it makes sense, her, the logic behind the writing and the fact that this is a continent away and that um, since it's almost like happening simultaneously as the end of the other game, they can kind of get away with having to deal with some of that stuff. Um, so anyway, we had never really heard her talk about it specifically. And she is definitely in that quote, in that interview, saying that the two storylines are separate. Um, there is no connection. We're not following up on what happened where this is its whole, this is a whole nother thing that's going on. Um, and that kind of pokes a hole into some of the hypoth hypotheticals that we have talked about on the podcast before about what the story might be or what the plague might be, the soul plague. I think it pokes a hole in that a little bit, but we'll see. We'll just have to wait and see about that. Um, in that same article, they talk about, um, how companion abilities will work. Um, and so this is a direct quote from Gabe Perermo. I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, the He is the gameplay director for Avowed. And he says specifically, spells are their own button. And what he's referring to with the companions is that they have some active combat abilities. You can kind of see what they're doing uh, in, the, in the video when you watch the, the footage that they share. He goes on to say, then there's more player-driven abilities that the player can access as well. And they're somewhat like an extension of what the player is in terms of how we want to present that. It's still tied to that singular ability button. And then Carrie jumps in and says, companions will also follow you into combat so you don't have to micromanage their every move. But as Gabe is saying, their abilities are there for you to deploy tactically. Mm. So how, how do you, how do you interpret that? That's kind of an, I'm kind of confused by that a little bit, but uh, he, he goes, he says that um, the comp companion abilities will be single button abilities. She goes in to say, you're not really micromanaging their every move. Um, their abilities are there for you to deploy tactically. I mean, out of worlds. That's yeah. exactly what what they are in Outer Worlds. There's yeah. they're they're mapped to I think um, if you're using a controller like the D-pad, mm -hmm. I believe, and then like each each companion is like one directional button in D-pad um, for their like quote unquote special ability. And uh, whenever you want to use it, you would aim at the the target you want them to hit, and you would press that button, and it would it, they would do an attack. I feel right. like that's what they're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. They do that in other games as well. Dragon okay. Age does that. Um, there's a couple of other party game, party tactical style games that do that. So, okay, I get it. 
I can see what you're talking about. Um, that article also goes on to talk about uh, Baldur's Gate 3, which is like the elephant in the room for any RPG maker. And I think it's the first time I've ever heard Carrie directly talk about a comparison between Avowed and Baldur's Gate 3. Um, so I just want to uh, read what she says about it. She basically points out that Avowed has around 100 developers with a few outsourced partners, while Baldur's Gate 3 had over 2,000 developers and partners in the credits of that game. So Avowed will be a medium-sized game in every way. And this is a direct quote from her. She says, as developers, it's always challenging because you know what your team size is and what your budget is, but most players don't know that information. You have some players who follow the industry very closely and might tailor their expectations accordingly, but most people who are coming to games just want a good experience and they don't know what your staff size is or how many dollars you could spend. And frankly, that's not for them to care about. They just expect a good game. Um, for us, the reference point we've been trying to point people to is the Outer Worlds. Um, that's also a game that has a very different scope, uh, a very comparable approach in terms of having a series of open regions rather than one massive map that you can walk from one corner to the opposite in however many hours that may take. Um, it did very well with that model. The team was able to tailor their content and the pacing of the experience accordingly. Um, scope is definitely not equivalent to quality, she adds. Um, what the relationship with Microsoft has allowed us to do is not drastically change the kinds of games we're making, but just allow us to make the kinds of games that we love making. Um, so good, good quote. I mean, there's nothing there that you really respond to. It's just, it's just, it, it's the first time she's ever directly addressed the elephant in the room and everybody coming in and like, Oh, I want another Baldur's Gate three. And if it's not that big, then it's going to be disappointment. And, um, I think she's just kind of saying, you know, cut us some slack here. We got a hundred people working on this game, not 2000. And, um, we're, we're going to, our scope is similar to outer worlds. So that's what you can expect. And that we've kind of heard that before through various channels, but I've never really heard her blanket statement, you know, talk about it in direct comparison to Baldur's Gate 3. I don't think any of us expect Baldur's Gate 3. Nobody expects no. that. So it's, and, and I don't necessarily want that. Um, I want them to have a good game, you know, and that's basically what she said is to have a good game. And the last thing in that article that I'll bring up, and this is related to some of the questions we got in email. I've gotten a lot of emails from people who are listening who want us to talk about Josh Sawyer and uh, how he might be involved and uh, what his lack of involvement might be. I've actually had several emails talk about how I'm not going to play the game if Josh isn't involved in it, yada, yada, yada. Um, so I would, I thought I would bring up what her quote is on this. She speaks directly about Josh Sawyer's involvement in the game. And she says this, Josh is the studio design director. So at some point he tends to have some involvement with, most of the projects going on in the studio to some degree or the other. 
since Pentiment released, he has been helping us a little bit more directly on the gameplay side and occasionally pinch hitting in a few other areas as we all tend to do in medium-sized projects or teams. So anybody who is thinking that he's not involved, he is involved as much as he can be. And uh, he's just not the game director. So cut carry some slack there, I think is the answer. And um, his involvement definitely is comforting because, you know, Pillars, he was highly involved, especially with the first one, you know, and that that's kind of, it was his baby. And um, so it's good to know that, that they're working together and it isn't you know i don't know what people are thinking that he's like sitting in a dark room somewhere you know wringing <laughs> his hands you will fail without me i don't i mean no i mean i i think it's great that he's got some involvement and some say and i think she respects him i think they've worked closely together obviously throughout the years on several projects um so i think there's kind of a mutual respect there and it will make the game even better I've seen people have like this really weird attitude when it comes to game development and how like there's this weird sense of competition and like animosity between developers and stuff. And uh, I think there's this, this really weird uh, idea that um, they're all in like horrible competitions and stuff like that. And I, I don't think any of that is true. I really don't. I feel like, like the audience for a game is the audience for a game. And I think at the end of the day, like out of all the people I know, most people will buy a game if it interests them. Not I'll buy this game over this game. It it, it might like affect their decision making when it comes to which game they buy first. But at the end of the day, the people that are going to buy Avowed are the same people that bought Baldur's Gate 3. And they're the same people that probably bought Skyrim. And they're the same people that probably are going to buy The Elder Scrolls 6. Uh, with a few other types of people or audiences mixed in. I I don't think that there's any type of like animosity between people. I mean, even... Um, um, I think Skyrim and Minecraft, like Minecraft's official launch was very, very close to Skyrim's, if I remember correctly. And Todd and Notch sat down and talked about it and they congratulated each other. It was like, it, it looked like two friends uh, just sitting down for a conversation. <clears throat> I think that's, I think that's more or less the, the idea that you get. It's not so much, um, I don't know, like, have any of you ever worked in the restaurant industry? Not me. Okay. Well, when when you work at the restaurant industry, whether you're a server or you're a cook or whatever, like it comes with a very specific set of problems and and and, and obstacles that you have to overcome. So when uh you run into someone else that's a cook, a lot of times, like I even recognize the restaurant workers. Uh, in the grocery store late at night they're dressed in all black and they have those non-slip shoes on and stuff and uh, it's immediately like a sense of camaraderie even though they're from another restaurant and they might be taking business away from you because people are some people are going to go there instead of where I work like there's no there's no sense of that I mean even even as far as our higher ups go like uh, in my restaurant, we trade food every Christmas and yeah. Thanksgiving with other restaurants. I think that's the kind of attitude that 
game developers and companies like that have towards each other. I agree. And I will say, I'll even go as far as to say this, and that I think that, um, and this is, of course, surface level. I don't know what's going on underneath. But the way that it's presented to us, the people who play the games from Xbox, is that their focus is giving tools to people in development, giving them any tools that they need, giving them. So I've heard many times of them going to visit a studio who may be encountering an issue or maybe struggling in one particular area or lost an employee to, to, and then they don't know what to do about it. And then they will immediately, uh, the quote unquote management will get together and say, Oh, um, such and such over at rare. He's really good at this. I'm going to put you in touch with him you know, let you guys can talk about it or, or whatever, you know, I, I'm, mm. I, I can see that happening some. So I think that helps with that, that respect and that bonding. Plus the fact that, I mean, I'm, I know this probably also has happened, especially with the pandemic and in the restaurant business, but it's happening now with gaming. The fact that, you know, the, the Microsoft just released, fired, made unemployed 1900 people. So this this kind of industry is going through this um, bizarre kind of situation where companies are making more money than they ever have, these game companies, but they're firing more people than they ever have. And um, that also, I think, kind of brings people together and so they can, you know, commiserate or they've had a friend who lost a job. So I think there's lots of different elements in that industry. I think that's I mean, you're always going to have assholes. Let's be honest. Mm. That's Mm. the world we live in. You're always going to have people who are assholes. But I think for the most part, people are looking for that camaraderie, for that shared experience, for that, uh, you know, reaching out and saying to, you know, I'm sure at the at 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 the conventions or whatever they're they're or the devs parties or whatever they're going to and they're going over to the Baldur's Gate 3 guys and saying that was so cool how did you do that or the Baldur's Gate 3 guy will go over to the Wasteland guy and say I love that game how did you do that I'm sure that that happens more than we know well I was going to speak kind of to to that whole like issue of Josh Sawyer and how his involvement and what is that you know some people saying that um they don't they won't buy the game if he's not involved. Yeah, I've seen I, that. I think I really truly think that they have a fun kind of a fundamental misunderstanding on what like a game director does. Um and like how involved like a game director, you know, and I might be he, like off about this, but from my understanding, a game director, he it's kind of like a democratic dictatorship kind of thing. The they they all have, you know, everyone has a say. Ultimately the, the buck stops with the game director, right? He's he or she is the one that says, okay, this is this is in the game or this is not in the game. You know what I mean? But but like the things that these people and I'm not talking for everyone, but like that these people love about you know Fallout in Vegas or Pillars of Eternity might not even been ha- have been done by Josh. Does that make sense? Like he was on yes. record, for example, saying that that he that the the writing lead was John Gonzalez on Fallout New Vegas, uh, who wrote the main plot, and Chris Avalone was the guy who who had the idea that um that the main character was shot in the head and left for dead in the desert. Yeah, yeah. And then he did the end, and then Josh Sawyer, you know, did the end point, the second battle at the Hoover Dam. So it's su- such a collaborative thing, and a lot of the people that uh that wrote some of your favorite things about Pillars of Eternity one and two are working on Avowed. 
Um, and Josh wasn't the one who wrote like every single companion that you love. You know, it well, was it, he may have he may have ultimately decided, yeah, this is great, this is going to be in it. Um, but the the person who like you know brass tacks did the thing that you love might still be working on about. And Carrie Patel worked on Pillars One. She, she was, was a big part. Yeah. yeah, I mean the whole DLC and then uh, Pillars Two and. It's not like she's new to the show, people. She's she's been doing this for a long time, and she and I could tell by some of the interviews and some other interactions I've seen with her just recently that she's very passionate about it, and that a lot of people there are very passionate about it. So I agree. I think it's I think it's ridiculous. I I think what what we're seeing is people who I mean, there's always tribalism. There's always allegiance. I mean, people do this with films, right? They'll they'll be like. Um, you know, I only watch Scorsese films or, um, you know, those are the only good ones. Those are the, he is the only one that makes good gangster movies or so they, they have a different flavor and tastes that, that they connect with. I get that. I understand that. Um, but like you said, it's, you know, that particular job is, is mainly a management job. It's managing people is what you're doing. And, and getting people to work together in different departments and solving conflicts and making making those ultimate decisions. But he's not, I mean, or she's not in there digging through the code. And, you know, it's you just have to be realistic about the whole thing, I think. Also, there, there is long term to consider. I mean, if, if, we, if I mean, I, I liked... Uh, the world of the aura, and if that world has to survive, it has to be able to survive without just Sawyer. Because setting aside the fact that he is mortal, uh, he probably won't like to work for uh, on these kind of games, uh, games set in the aura for the rest of his life. He will probably like to do other things, and yep. so, so, so that's one thing. But also, we have to see that. There are different kinds of games that can be set inside the same world. And, and these kind of games have will have different ways of, of looking at the world and they will have a different approach to it. Absolutely. And and for this, like you, I think that key point for those of us who are fans of this world and this lore, if we want it to survive, we have to be a little more open-minded. Um, you know, and I I I never really was of the field of that. If Josh is not involved, um, it's going to be a bad game. I think the, the, the big catch for me was always that was the change in direction. And I don't want to get back into that stuff, but that's where they lost me a little bit. That's where I got a little bit concerned. Um, you know, they presented one thing and then they stopped and changed it completely. And then that, that whole disastrous first trailer. Um, so yeah, it's, they, 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 a couple of missteps and that's what, that's where I will be. Um, I will feel for the people who are making those, those brutal statements. I understand that emotion cause I went through it too. I think I'm on the other side of that now. I really do. Um, I see Carrie Patel in a different light now. I see the game in a different light now. I, like parenthesis says, I have to accept that this is not Pillars 3. This is avowed. It's its own world. you got to give it a chance to live and breathe by itself. Um, it's a different game, and that's just where we'll leave it. So 
uh, thanks everybody for listening and thanks you guys for coming on today. We're going to try to do these whenever we get more information or more interviews that come out, we'll come on and we'll give our reactions and we'll talk about it. This also gives you the listener a chance to kind of hear what people are saying and in one fatal swoop, instead of having to filter through all the different articles that are out there. Um, and then we've heard that they're definitely going to be releasing more information. Um, we know for a fact they've mentioned they will be at the June showcase for Xbox. So we'll probably get more information. I'm assuming that's probably when we'll get the bulk of the story information about Avowed, um, since they've really kind of they've really kind of beaten the combat part to death. So I think they're probably that's where we're probably going to hear more about the other elements of the game, like character creation and. Um, uh, dialogue choices and, uh, you know, uh, the story. I mean, give us a general idea. I don't want to hear the whole thing, but give us a general idea of what's going on. So I think we'll get more information and we'll respond to that. Um, so I'm going to let you guys do a shout out if you want. Um, Jesse, can people find you anywhere? Do you want them to find you? I still have my Instagram account, Jesse's Bricks, all one word. Uh, nice. J E S S E. Um, uh, I will be at the Annapolis, Maryland uh, Brick Universe Expo, and I'll be uh, showing off my skeleton tower mock. So that'll be that'll be fun. That and, sounds um, so awesome. <laughs> it just does. Uh, it sounds so I fun. Ju- I can drop a I can drop a picture. Uh, someone someone called it the someone on Reddit called it the Soyjack Tower, and uh, it, it's broken my heart honestly. But oh. I, I I completely agree. <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll be doing that. And, uh, I still have my, my world building project that I'm, I'm always working on. Uh, updates are, are very, very slow. Um, but my, uh, my schedule and everything else is finally getting like smoothed out in life. So, uh, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to do more of that cool. in, the, in the coming months. Awesome. Awesome. Parenthesis. Uh, what have, what have you got going on? So I stream on Twitch on Thursdays. I stream Siberia 2 currently, and on Sundays I stream uh, King of Dragon Pass. Awesome. Um, Remoran? I'm uh, at Sir Remoran on X. <laughs> X, Twitter, yes. thing, yeah. whatever. Do you think it's ever going to go back to Twitter? I mean, everybody still calls it Twitter. Do you think? I don't know. I feel like every single article that is like sourced from from twitter slash x they say x formerly twitter yeah <laughs> and i feel like i was gonna say that to the end of time it does it feels that way for sure um anyway for for avowedcast you guys can find us at avowedcast.com we're also on twitter at avowedcast and we thank you guys for being listeners and uh we didn't get to your emails this time i think we'll probably get to do that next time we do this maybe do a full email episode because we got a lot of you guys writing in and we appreciate it and appreciate that you're listening. So uh, thank you very much, and we'll see you guys next time. Destruction with no goal other than to revel in the chaos zone is an act of a mindless beast. And I have no more need of beasts. (laughs) Thank you.